Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, when colonists of New England had to make decisions, they drew on customs and traditions from their communities of origin. Big decisions were made at annual town meetings and day-to-day matters were handled by a board of selectmen. Um, this morning, we've got some guests who can help us see where things have gone since those early colonial days. Happy to welcome uh, Jim Fisher back to the airways. Uh, Jim is now the town manager of Deer Isle, but for many years, um, he was the, one of the planners at the Hancock County Planning Commission, and in that role, um, co- hosted um, a program here on WERU called Common Health. Welcome back, Jim. Well, good morning, Ron. Good to have you with us. Courtney O'Donnell is the town manager of Stockton Springs, um, and uh, we're so happy to have her with us. Welcome to you, Courtney. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And Derlin Lunt, who is the town manager of Mount Desert. Um, our, our work in the past goes back to some early days in cooperative extension. So sure does, Ron. Glad to have you um, with us. And each of you um, uh, represent towns that are, are relatively um, small um, in size, but they have all of the complexities that, that uh, we might expect in a, in a kind of a modern age. So I'd like each of you to give um, a little bit of background on yourselves, perhaps starting with you, Derlin. How did you get involved in the in the business of, of being a town manager? Goes back, Ron, into the 1970s up into 1992 when I was an elected official. Had a lot of interest in that. When I went to the extension, uh, I was commuting from Northeast Harbor up to Orono every day, and so it was not really possible for me to stay uh, on the board and, and do justice to that. But uh, I, during my time between 1992 and when I became town manager in 2010, I took a master's in public administration program at the University of Maine. And so uh, when an opening came up, I was asked to be an interim, and that was nine years ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Courtney, you share that notion of, of, of looking at the a master of public administration as as a way into um, uh, a job as a town manager. Yeah, I actually went to the University of Maine. I graduated uh, from the public management uh, program that actually no longer exists there in Orono. <laughs> um, and from there, I worked uh, for a while um, in the city of Bangor before uh, landing my job as a town manager for Stockton Springs. Mm. And had you always had an interest in, in community government or... Um, you know, I was from, I'm from a very small town in Northern Maine and I can't say as I remember a whole lot about local government, but it was something, um, I just took an intro class at uh, the college and became very interested in and the rest is history. (laughs) Uh And where did you grow up? 
Uh, in Smyrna uh-huh. in Arista County. Right. Yep. We pass through Smyrna um, regularly when we're headed to the Allagash. So yep. <laughs> it's a pass-through town for, for some of us. Uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the position um, there in the uh, town of Deer Isle. I have to say it's probably a long and circuitous path, but in high school I identified that I would probably go to Bowdoin College if I could get in and that I was interested in a PhD in planning or public administration, which I don't think is a typical thing for a high school student, but (laughs) under my father's influence, I think. He was um, the chair of the uh, United States, I guess, Association of Public Administrators. Uh So he he was certainly invested in different ways in that. And I I followed through, but with trips to all over the world, uh, doing mostly planning, uh, economic development, And for about 17 years, I was with the Hancock County Planning Commission and worked with all 37 towns in Hancock County. And I enjoyed the the field. I just didn't know that I'd ever settle on working with just one town. I I tend to think regionally. But I got a very nice offer from the town of Deer Isle a year ago to be their first town manager and my first time working full-time as a town manager, and I took it, and it's been really enjoyable. Mm. Why don't we keep with you, Jim, and and ask you to describe a little bit about um, the town of Deer Isle. We know it's located on the island of Deer Isle, but tell us a little (laughs) bit more about the town. Well, it's a rural town. Uh, We have a a year-round population of just 2,000 people, uh, pretty well dispersed across the island. We share with the town of Stonington, which is about half our size, and uh, our economic base is, is, is not unique for coastal Maine, but it's really impressive how important the lobster industry is for us. And in a typical U.S. town, you might expect 3% of your workforce to be in agriculture or fishing. It's more like 15%, but that understates the, the importance of that industry for us because so much of our export revenue comes from selling lobsters. And... Uh, the lobstermen are, are our base industry, but we have other, other kinds of work that goes on uh, and, and an increasingly large retiree population that goes with aging. Uh, our median age is 57 now, which mm. is uh, getting on. And uh, so we have a, a lot of people who are retired and living in, in fairly isolated rural areas, which creates another set of interesting mm. challenges. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a lovely community, and we have some cottage industries. I encourage people to come visit uh, Nervous Nellie's Jams and Jellies and Haystack mm-hmm. School for Folk Arts or Crafts and Arts and Crafts. And those those gems make, make small-town Maine particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. Courtney, tell us a little bit about Stockton Springs, which, again, um, is, is a, a coastal town. Um, probably fishing is part of that, but what else is there? Uh, Well, Stockton is located between Belfast and Bucksport, um, so I think a lot of our population travels to work. Uh, But we do have commercial fishermen um, and a number of businesses in town. Um, I would say that I think we're just under uh, 30 square miles, um, and actually our median age is 49.9 according to our last census. Uh, But we are certainly seeing an increase of retirees as well. Um, But, yeah. And in terms of the um, the uh, population itself, how many people live there? Uh, 1,600 year-round residents. That number does inflate um, during the summer. Mm-hmm. So you've got a seasonal population. that, that Absolutely. Um, and that's mostly uh, folks um, on the coast itself, or do you have lakes as well? Um, mostly, uh, mostly coastal. Um, I believe there's one lake. 
Um, but uh, we have like a number of condos and whatnot. A lot of um, the folks that reside in those uh, are seasonal. Yep. And um, is there a downtown? Um, most of us pass through and we're bypassing the Yeah. Village. Unfortunately, uh, Route 1 and 1A runs through Stockton, but it sort of it bypasses downtown. You'd actually have to go off um, to the side uh, through Main Street to see our little tiny downtown. Um, but yeah, we have a, a couple of businesses, including a new restaurant called the Hitchborn Inn that I highly recommend. Great, great. Durland, tell us a little bit about the town of Mount Desert. And you're a native, is that right? I am a native. I uh, actually uh, was born there and went to, went to the local school systems. And uh, Mount Desert is made up of six villages, and it sits right geographically in the middle of Mount Desert Island. You've got Bar Harbor to the north of us, and you have Tremont and Southwest Harbor to the south. Um, it has a population of approximately 2,000, so we're just very similar to everyone else there. Um, we have uh, <coughs> a very fine elementary school, and we also uh, have got a, a pretty well-defined group of, uh, of volunteers. Mm -hmm. um, the economy? What's economy is mostly seasonal residences. That's the, that's the engine that drives our economy. So you've got a lot of people who are doing um, contract work or work for some of those seasonal residents. We do. Right. You know, that's, that's a big part I of could, our base. I could echo that. Our population doubles in the summer, as does Stonington's. And a lot of our lobstermen, for instance, will spend the winters doing carpentry work, plumbing, any other work, roofing that they can do. Uh, right. Kind of keep their keep their income flowing. Is there anything about, um, I'd, I'd suggested that maybe each of you um, have a historical mm -hmm. fact that um, most listeners would not be aware of in terms of your towns. Anybody got anything to share on the uh, the, uh, the, the historical um, anecdote or, or story? Darlin, I know, has something to say. Well, um, I'm sure. He always does. <laughs> um, what, what would we be in really fascinated about the town of Mount Desert? Well, I think uh, the town of Mount Desert actually was the, the government for the whole of Mount Desert Island in 1789 when mm -hmm. it became incorporated by the Great and General Court of Massachusetts, and then gradually it split off. So I'm going to take the fact that the town of Mount Desert was originally the whole island, and I'm going to purloin a little bit of Southwest Harbor's history, saying, you know, it belongs equally to us. And that would be, if you're familiar with uh, Fernald's Point, mm. uh, there was a Jesuit colony there in the 1600s, which was destroyed by a fellow named Samuel Argyle. But that represented the first armed clash of the British and the French in North America. So that happened there. Southwest Harbor has it now, but we had it then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Courtney, what, what would we be fascinated to learn about uh, Stockton? Um, I guess I would talk about the name. Um, uh, it's commonly referred to as just Stockton. Um, it's very common, and actually um, I had run across some people that were very confused and asking if Stockton was different than Stockton Springs, um, but it turns out that actually um, the town was originally named just Stockton, um, when it was incorporated in 1857, uh, but changed to Stockton Springs in 1889 um, in anticipation of uh, bottling local spring water, uh, but that plan was later abandoned due to sediment found that was in the bottles. So, um, but still, Stockton lives on, I guess. <laughs> oh, cool. So it was a commercial venture that, right. that really didn't work out because of some pr problems with the water itself. Absolutely, yep. Jim, how about Deer Isle? What would be, we be interested to learn about Deer Isle? Well, I, I'm, I'm hardly the, the source. So we're fortunate to have Bill Haviland 
as a as a our resident historian, and he's got books on the history of Deer Isle. I I asked him for a chapter for a comprehensive plan we're starting on, and he gave me the chapter like two days later. That's <laughs> a wonderful history. But for me, because of my background in transportation planning, I think the history, one of the interesting stories is just the, the creation of the big suspension bridge that serves Deer Isle, because we, we're not cut off. We don't require a bridge, but it was this this sort of traumatic, dramatic, if you like, change for the island is documented in a, in a wonderful way by a, a, a musical written by Paul Sullivan, uh, a local and very celebrated pianist and composer uh, called The Last Ferryman. And about 1940, I'm speaking in round terms, this bridge was constructed, and uh, it's at the end of its life, though we're having to convince DOT <laughs> that that's the case. Mm. But it, it changed everything. I think the island culture was based on this sort of relative isolation, the need and bad weather to just hunker down and take care of your neighbors. And that tradition is maintained. Uh, a funny uh, little anecdote is one of the songs in Paul's musical is There Are No Skunks in Deer Isle. And I guess one of the arguments against building a bridge is that skunks would <laughs> come to Deer Isle. And I was listening to the CD he gave me, uh, Crossing the Bridge, and there was a dead skunk in the <laughs> middle of the bridge. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> So, so um, both both you and Derlin um, represent um, towns on on island. Um, in this in this case, both bridged islands. Right. Yours in 1940, and Derlin yours was 1920 or 20, so. Yeah, so both then, yeah. so um, each of those um, are a point in time in which um, you became connected in some way to the to the mainland, and your economies became much more interconnected. I suppose. So. Yeah, and actually, with Mount Desert, the, fa the fascinating history was that people traveled by train to the town of Hancock, then took a ferry Fair. to Bar Harbor before the bridge was built. Mm -hmm. And when the bridge was built, that was kind of the end of the train service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But all of you were <laughs> coastal towns and served yep. um, primarily by. Um, uh, water by vessel by um, local ferries and steamships right. that would come up the coast right and there are still a few of our older residents that remember the steamships mm. they're getting fewer and fewer but they're still there mm. so let's talk a little bit about um the governance structure i uh, referred to a kind of the town meeting form of government um tradition in new england if we have um either residents who move um, to our our communities or or visitors, um, they're sometimes perplexed by this notion of direct democracy of having town meetings. So each of you have town meetings, is that right? Yes. Yes. And um, uh, tell us a little bit about what your preparation for town meeting is and what what happens at town meeting. Um, Courtney, can we start with you? You're sure. you're kind of in the in the process <coughs> right now. Yeah. Uh, so our town meeting uh, takes place in June of every year, and actually this year's has already been set for June 15th um, at 9 a.m. Um, and so right now we're in the process of going through the budget. Um, I, I start with that. Um, I build it out and then present it to the select board through uh, workshops, and then eventually it makes its way to town meeting. Uh, we also look at ordinance changes and things like that. Um, and basically, once everything comes together, it, we create an annual report with all the information, and it's given out to residents about a month before um, before town meeting. And then uh, we hope as many residents as possible actually come out and ask questions and learn what's going on in town. 
Mm. And you have a, a, still a morning town meeting. That's yes. fairly rare in, in Maine still. But um, what what keeps that tradition, do you suppose, that morning town meeting? Uh, I think it's mostly, I mean, it's always Saturday morning at 9. Um, and I think it's really just, uh, you know, for the purposes of people's busy lives and getting out there and doing other things. Um, and so the morning time just, it's always been that way, I guess. And there's, we're not sure moving it would really help increase, right. I guess, right. the amount of people that show up. And is there food associated with town meeting? Uh, no, there hasn't been since I've been there. But I know at one time there used to be like bake sales and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, but but you, you conclude then um, before lunchtime. Probably. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, town meeting it usually goes to two and a half hours or okay. so. All right. Yeah. Darlin, how about the town of Mount Desert? What's your uh, tradition in terms of town meeting? Ours is now in May. We switched that maybe 10 or 12 years ago from the traditional March meeting. So I'm in, in the process now of, of getting the budget and warrant articles together. We do have a warrant committee that is now starting to meet and to review those. And that process will be wrapped up by middle of March, and then we'll have the meeting the first week in May. So mm-hmm. it's really a busy time for everyone in the town right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And Jim, dear, uh, uh, um, still has a March town meeting. Even sooner, yeah. Our tradition has been to have the town meeting in the, in the afternoon. Um, we would have voting in the morning, allow a couple of hours to count the votes, and then the meeting in the afternoon. We're experimenting this year, moving it to Saturday. I think it's March 9th in the afternoon, and uh, we'll probably move it over to the high school. Our, our concern, and I think this is a concern of any town, is that we get a core group of people who come to a town meeting, about, in our case, 80 or so, out of a population, year-round population of 2,000. Uh, we'd like to have more, and so we're trying Saturday afternoon. Uh, hard to say whether that will increase participation or not, but for people who are working, in a nine to five or in a uh, even blue collar work, taking a, a, a weekday afternoon to go to town meeting is, is difficult. And so we're experimenting with that. And we're, we're, uh, we try to put some of the important decisions into the actual referenda in the morning because more people can do that. They don't, it's not a big time commitment. We typically have had a volunteer group come bringing baked goods, uh, which helps. So the meeting is, I think, closer to the Stockton Springs length, uh, mm. not like... Blue Hill that goes all day. Uh, but uh, we'll have some issues this year. I'm sure people want to want to be there and talk about. Um, what are some of the things that you imagine to be on the on the warrant? Well, um, we're, we're, I don't know if we're unique in this respect, but our schools actually, the funding of the school, they have their own town meeting in July, June, July. And so, but there's discussion now. There's going to be a special vote in uh, January 29th coming right up about what to do about the high school where our enrollments have been declining and uh, costs continue to increase. We've got an older high school that needs significant renovation. So people have to make a decision about whether to keep the high school in Deer Isle, whether we might send kids over to the elementary school and reconfigure the building or send them off island. So that's a, that's a big issue. We'll see how the vote turns out. I I think there's a lot of uh, interest in keeping the high school on the island. It's just that with that decision, we have to take on significant renovation costs. So there'll be a lot of discussion about that, even though at the town meeting that won't be voted on. That's not till July, but that will have a big impact on our overall budget. Like a lot of towns, the school is probably two-thirds of our budget. Mm. 
It's the biggest piece. I'll just remind listeners, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're um, having a conversation with um, three town managers about uh, kind of looking back at the year just passed and looking forward um, from the town of Deer Isle. You've just heard from Jim Fisher, town manager there, also joined here in the studio with uh, by Courtney O'Donnell, who's the town manager of Stockton or Stockton Springs, as some people will, will refer to it, and Derlin Lunt, the town manager in Mount Desert. Um, in addition to, to budget, Courtney, what, what else do you imagine coming up for town, town vote this year? Um, well, there are, there's an opening on the select board um, and also uh, for our fire chief. And actually, we do our referendum um, on Election Day, the Tuesday before town meeting. So uh, that way nothing's rushed and we don't expect people to come and go. Um, they can just show up uh, Saturday at our town meeting and um, all the um, how the votes, I guess, turned out will be made available then. Um, but... I'm sorry. So, and, and the and you said the fire chief is that an elected position? It is elected. Uh-huh. Yep. yep. Um, our current fire chief Vern Thompson. Um, he does a great job. He's been in that role for uh, many years now. Um, I don't expect that to change, but you never know. Sure, sure. <laughs> Drillin, what might come up at the town meeting in the town of Mount Desert? I think we're looking at a pretty uh, standard town meeting this year, Ron. We don't have any extraordinary measures onto the ballot. Uh, last year we had a a controversial measure to do revitalization work on downtown Northeast Harbor. Uh, That will be commencing in the spring. Uh, So that one's uh, created a lot of interest, and and a lot of people had opinions pro and con on that, and uh, I think we've worked those through. What I'm looking for is is kind of a breather year when we can just sort of do the the basic business of the community. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Mm. So, again, the the notion that town meeting happens once a year, it's the time when voters um, approve a budget, hopefully, that, you, that, that you've prepared, and they vote on any um, land use ordinances that, um, that, that you'd like to change. Um, and those can be um, either the government recommends those, the select board or the planning board, or that, I suppose, could happen through citizen initiative. Um, and um, then there are election of office and any other kinds of, of a referenda, as you said. Um, what's the day-to-day life of a, a town manager? So, you know, you, you've gotten the, the notion, okay, here's your annual meeting. You've got a budget. What, I suppose it's varied. Um, Courtney, what, what's the day-to-day life of a, a town manager? Oh, the things that cross my desk. <laughs> Dog bites and potholes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is different every day. Um, you know, I might be dealing with some road issues one day and then, uh, the next, you know, I've got a business owner calling me about something. Um, it's so varied. Um, and I think a lot of people um, don't really understand how varied our jobs are and the issues that do come across our desks at any given time. Um, but it is it's pretty vast. <laughs> Jim? Uh, oh, my favorite call in my first year on the job was someone who couldn't figure out how to operate the remote on her television. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, dog bites, potholes. Uh, lately, it's mailboxes knocked over by snowplows. There, there are a lot of these little, little issues, and nobody, they don't. Residents really don't know who to call, and so they call the town office, call the town manager, and and uh, of course, a lot of times it's well, I'm, I'll, I'll take that note and I'll pass it along because I'm, I'm neither good at replacing mailboxes nor uh, resolving problems with angry dogs, but. <laughs> Uh, some of the, the other big issues, I, I think the, the challenge in town management is to, to keep your eyes on the bigger issues and not get drawn into too many of the details. And that's pr- 
particularly challenging for me because I like to solve problems. Mm. But we have big issues in Deer Isle. We've got a transfer station that's difficult to run, increasing cost of recycling, which is really making it hard for a lot of towns now to maintain their recycling programs. We've got roads that are uh, hard to maintain, lots and lots of uh, rural highway and, and, and dirt roads. And just these bigger issues so that we don't get drawn into solving a small problem. We can think about, well, what are we going to do for the next 10 years so that things will work well for people? Mm. Darlene, um, a little bit of reflection both about the day-to-day and some of these bigger issues that uh, Jim has raised. Uh, every day I start off and I write what is my work plan going to be for the day. And I don't know if I've had a day yet when that's ever been uh, uh, accomplished because they're usually are diverging off into some other things. Geographically, my office faces right out to the front desk area. And so I keep my door open and I can see people that come in. And so I always encourage people to come in and, and talk and uh, tell me what's going on, what they like, what they don't like. And I get, you know, a fair amount of visitors every day. So I have to, it's like, to use a hockey term, we change on the fly. Mm. And, mm. Uh, and that's what's great fun of it. And what I'm looking forward, uh, you know, down the line is, uh, is making sure that the village is sustainable, or the town, I should say, is sustainable over the next decade. And... Uh, Things like uh, an aging population are what is keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm, it really mm-hmm. does. You mentioned the revitalization effort. That's kind of yes. a, a downtown yes. or one of the villages in yes, northeast harbor. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. So. And what 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 led to the the interest in having that kind of effort being made? Well, in two thousand and nine, we had a fire that took out several of the buildings business buildings on the main street and those holes to this day have not been filled in and so what the idea is is we have groups uh, interested in doing those but what we wanted to do is to build a, a downtown that people would be interested in coming into and trying to have some unique things there uh, northeast harbor unlike camden or rockland or, or stockton springs we're a drive to a community, not a drive-by community. So we don't get the benefit of like a Camden of somebody coming through and say, what a nice-looking little town. Let's stop and look at the shops. If you come to Northeast Harbor, it's because you want to come to Northeast Harbor. And so we need to give people a reason to come there. And so that was sort of the uh, a group of citizens got together. We formed a, a revitalization committee several years ago. And so that is uh, what we're trying to do. And I think Things are going to start to happen now. We've, we've got a group uh, you may be familiar with called M Mount Desert 365 mm. that has purchased several of the commercial properties, is in the process of designing buildings with residences overhead. So I'm really looking forward. I think that would be a, a positive step. It's not going to solve the whole problem, but it's going to be a very positive step in that direction. Mm. Courtney, what are some of the things that you might envision long, longer term in terms of uh, the town of Stockton? Um, in Stockton, we have a couple of uh, larger issues. First, um, our firehouse at uh, some point soon will need to be replaced. Um, our firehouse was actually um, a chicken coop at one time, um, and so it's been refitted, but it's so small that the newer trucks will not fit in it, and so eventually that is something that we will need to address. Uh, but also, um, similar to Jim mentioned, uh, schools and whatnot, and we actually have an elementary school in our town that was closed uh, due to lack of kids and whatnot. Um, and so there's a lot of discussions going on about what might happen with that school, and a lot of citizens are very interested um, 
And one of the first things I always need to point out uh, to citizens is that the town does not actually own that building. It's owned by the RSU. And I think that sometimes those dynamics are hard to understand as a citizen. But uh, we are all working together to see, um, hopefully, to um, repurpose the building or, you know, sell it something uh, to to bring uh, either people into town or uh, perhaps even like a community use of the building. I know that there's a lot of residents that would love to see, you know, a, a more robust uh, like recreation department and things like that. So those are uh, probably some of the bigger uh, things that we're handling or dealing with right now. Mm. I'll remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns and and uh, we're about halfway through. I'm going to ask um, our, our panel members about um, property taxes and how that all fits together in just a minute. And uh, then after that, we'll welcome your phone calls as well. Uh, with us in the studio are Courtney O'Donnell, town manager of Stockton Springs, Derlin Lunt of the uh, town of Mount Desert, and Jim Fisher, town manager of Deer Isle. Let's talk a little bit about property taxes. There seem to be on everyone's um, kind of list of, of concerns. Uh, they con- are concerned about um, rising property taxes. Uh, property taxes are based on something called valuation, um, and that is the, the commercial or the, or the, or the, the value of properties in town. Um, give us a, a sense, and I think we're going to see some diversity here, in terms of the valuation on which property taxes are, are built. Uh, Jim, what's, what's the approximate valuation in, in Deer Island? Uh, and I, and I, I, I get a lot of calls from real estate agents saying, how much is, you know, what's on the, this property worth on our, in our tax database? And I go, well, here's what we say it's worth, but Deer Isle's well overdue on doing a revaluation. It's been uh, 1982. Wow. Yeah. I think we're a record holder in the state. And so our valuation's um, are not accurate, and it, there's a lot of difficulty in assigning. But overall, I think we're at about $250 million okay. in round terms. And we'll start with you because it's, it's the <clears throat> same for every, every one of you. Yeah. How does that relate to property taxes? What, that $250 million, what's the relationship between well, the, 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 the y- tax bill and that valuation? Yeah, and I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the state tells us, roughly what we're worth and the town's job is more to figure out how that's divided up among the properties and we have to assign a tax rate in order to uh, pay for government pay for emergency response and and the tax rate is that is the um, the percentage of that property value we need to charge in order to meet our budgetary plan. So which you start with, start, start with the budget then. Yep. You determine your costs. How much money we need mm-hmm. to raise. Right. And then we look at how much we're worth. And in our case, I think it's about um, a mill rate of 20 or uh, be $20 per thousand. So if you have a house yeah. that's worth $100,000, What's the what's the calculation there? I think it's two thousand dollars. Right. So that yeah. that mill rate is something that most people say, oh, our property tax is going out, but they don't necessarily look at oh, what's the relationship. Courtney, tell us a little bit about Stockton and, and the the valuation and the mill rate. Yeah, um, our um, evaluation is um, our valuation is a little lower than that. It's about one hundred and ninety four million. Um, one of the things that I run across uh, frequently is. Um, folks don't always know that our mill rate, which is $20.20, so very similar to Deer Isle, um, is made up of not just the municipal budget, but also school and county as well. Um, and so school actually makes up 70% of our mill About rate. two-thirds, yeah, yeah. more. So that's, a, that's an important distinction for folks to know. Right. 
Darlin, um, you have a record holder, in, in, <laughs> in, at least in this group. Right. One of the biggest in the state, I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, taxable property isn't one of the challenges that we have. Our, uh, our last valuation, we have a higher, the town of Mount Desert has a higher valuation than the whole of, Pan of Piscataquis County. So we, we're uh, operating on a different plane. It's about $2.1 billion dollars. Um, it's I, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a staggering figure, and it does increase by 15 to 20 million dollars every year. So, so we're very blessed in that. Um, our mill rate is seven dollars and seventy cent, seventy-eight cents last year. But there is there there is sort of a a conundrum on that because if you are have property right now in the town of Mount Desert, like I do you can easily afford the property taxes there. For example, a, a house valued at about $400,000 would have a property tax of about $2,900. But here's the key. That's because we have a high valuation. Because we have a high valuation, new people can't afford to buy the house to get the low property tax rate. Right. So that goes back, and now uh, that is one of the contributing factors to our aging population, the inability of young people starting out to be able to come and live and own property in the town of Mount Desert. And so that's where we need to really do some serious hard work mm, yeah. over the next decade. We have that challenge, too, and in fact had a meeting this week, and this is one of many meetings on workforce housing, being led citizen-led committee and in collaboration with Stonington, which I think is critical for us. We had 20 people around the table all concerned about this issue, which for us is a big committee meeting. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think affordable housing for people who want to come and work and be a sternman on a lobster boat or work in the in the nursing home or, or, or the high school is really going to, it's essential for us to keep keep attracting young families to the island. Mm -hmm. And even though our, our valuation is kind of low, if we do a revaluation, it, it doesn't necessarily in a way it kind of doubles but our tax rate cuts in half right. so a lot of people will see lower taxes after that so a revaluation doesn't necessarily increase your taxes but it does put us on a more realistic plane so we know what you know so we're saying houses are worth what the market says and it's clearly expensive the sort of lower cost houses are over 200,000 on Deer Isle Mm. And that's hard for anyone to afford mm. if they're working at a you know fifteen twenty dollar an hour job. Mm. Sure. So as you think about the future of your towns and the and the um, the demographics, um, the the makeup of the town in terms of um, age and um, kind of income levels and and that sort of thing, um, all of you are wrestling with: Do you have enough people in your town to do all the things that a town needs? How do how do you handle that notion in terms of of even the town kinds of things, town volunteers, volunteers on planning board and select board and, and that sort of thing. Are you having a hard time attracting people to those positions, Dernan? We're very fortunate to have a very dedicated and talented board of volunteers. We just don't have enough of them, Ron, and they're serving on multiple committees. Mm. So you would like to have a bit bigger diversity of people serving on these committees instead of having one person be on five or six. Sure. And that's going to be the challenge. And of course, it's uh, another challenge along these lines going back to uh, the affordable housing is how much longer are we going to be able to staff the professional positions within the town um, 
with, to the with, level. With, with town, town with, residents. Yeah, well, for example, when I was on the board of selectmen, Ron, we probably had 90 to 95 percent of uh, our uh, town employees lived in the town of Mount Desert. That's down now to about 42 percent. About 20 percent of our employees drive from a distance greater than Ellsworth. Uh, that is... Uh, uh, a challenge. Yeah, it really is because you're getting people further and further away, and that's going to get, I believe, going to get worse because we had a safety valve of affordable communities like Trenton and Lemoyne, where a lot of our town employees lived. Those towns now are getting to be very expensive. So people, we have people coming from as far as Eastbrook mm-hmm. uh, to come and work in the, in the town of Mount Desert, and I don't know how sustainable that's going to be over the long run. Mm. How about your, your towns? Are you um, struggling with keeping the number of volunteers you need, and, and how does that work? Courtney? Um, I would, I think, echo uh, Durland's points. Um, Stockton's actually very lucky. We have... Um, a good core group of volunteers, um, but also we've seen a sort of a, an uptick, I guess, in the amount of people getting involved. Uh, recently, we had a citizen group form called Stockton Springs Community Builders. They're looking to bring back some um, activities that used to be held, you know, years ago and sort of fell off the map. So they're working to bring those back. But we also have like a very robust library, community library. They have a large number of volunteers. Uh, we have very active scout groups. Um, and you know we we are very fortunate actually to have um, healthy numbers on our fire and ambulance services oh, as well. Um, so you know we're always looking to increase the diversity certainly um, because usually you know the, that core group they are a little overextended at times I think. But generally speaking, um, we have um, our committees and boards and whatnot are adequately filled, but there are always a couple of vacancies. Yeah. Jim, well I <coughs> we. One of the challenges, I guess, with an aging population is a lot of our volunteers are now seasonal. Hmm. And so some of the tough work needs to be done in the winter, helping somebody who's older <clears throat> with transportation, with health care, um, access to services. Those things are, are increasingly difficult to man. Our fire department also is very good, but we have, it's difficult to attract young people to be volunteers on fire departments. I'd, Part of that solution has come through uh, more interlocal agreements, through regional collaborations. I, I'm really fortunate. I think we have great people on the island, but we also have some really nice organizations like Healthy Acadia, Healthy Peninsula, Healthy Island that are, are taking care of a lot of the uh, public health issues. They're helping educate people and prepare them and coordinate volunteers. We've got um, Joe Cooper and uh, Friends in Action that help us a tremendous amount with transportation. Uh, Down East uh, Partners, Community Partners, which was WHCA, is also providing a lot of service. So we, and we're working closely with Stoning. So it's that, I think that collaboration is one of the ways we're bridging a gap. Now, at some point, um, this aging phenomenon is going to age out. The boomers are going to either move permanently away or pass away. Mm. And we will have a surplus of housing stock at some point. But we've got another 10, 15 years, I guess, where we're facing this this sort of graying process before something dramatic has got to change. The other factor, and I know this is affecting Durland's, we had a restaurant in Deer Isle that couldn't open last summer. They could not get the employees they needed for that. Um, and so we're, our business, our, our little village and other businesses really struggle 
Mm. Uh, to open now because they don't have the staff they need. It, it's a seasonality. Right. We'll come back and talk a little bit about uh, collaboration among towns and, and other entities in just a minute. Um, but I'll welcome uh, listeners to call um, if you'd like to participate in our conversation about how uh, small town governance is working in your area. Give us a call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. That's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Berlin, um, you've got a, uh, a unique arrangement, not unique, I guess, if we, but you've got a, a rare arrangement in that you're sharing police services with the town of Bar Harbor. Tell us a little bit about how yes. that came about. Yes, that came when the, they had a vacancy in the chief's position over in Bar Harbor, and Dana Reed, who was the town manager at that time, called and said, could you help me out? You know, could your police chief come over and and help us through this time period and uh, and get ourselves uh, back on track? And uh, said, sure. We worked out an arrangement, and it grew from there. It was very successful at the point. We have an excellent uh, police chief. His name is Jim Willis. Um, he was the president of the Maine Chief Police Association for one time. Very well thought of. Um, so we've expanded. Jim's. Uh, mission that the select board of Mount Desert and the town council of Bar Harbor charged him with is, uh, let's see how this works. We took it just a year just to, to give the ch- opportunity to, to get the Bar Harbor force pulled back together. But after that, we renewed it for a year. And every year, we do more and more to do operational integration of the two departments. If you come over to the town office in Mount Desert or you go to the town hall in Bar Harbor, you're liable to see uh, a Mount Desert police cruiser in Bar Harbor and a Bar Harbor police cruiser in Mount Desert. Uh, we have uh, uh, the supervisory staff take shifts. We have uh, we have districts, and it, it's very probable that you might have uh, the night shift in, in the town of Mount Desert might have the uh, police lieutenant in Bar Harbor being in charge of that shift. So people at first, I had a call once uh, very early in that when we started moving that together and somebody says, what is a Bar Harbor town uh, police cruiser <laughs> doing in my neighborhood? And I said, well, let me explain that, <laughs> which I did. Uh, they were a bit skeptical, but now I think it's second nature. You don't even think about that. Uh, so we're going to continue. We've renewed it for another year, and we're going to continue to explore these operational integrations. And I think that may be one of the things through interlocal agreements that we need to consider is other positions. Could other positions within the town government? Because with the whole thing is you, we know Maine's an older population. Christy, you said that Courtney. the uh, Courtney, excuse me, uh, that we don't have a, a public administration school in Orono anymore. So there are less and less people to fill these positions. In some instances, it's going to make sense. Can we look at sharing these? Right. And uh, that's where your interlocal agreements come in. I'll come back to you in just a minute and have, continue this. We have a caller from Brooklyn. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, thanks for the show and thanks for. Uh keeping it local. Um, that said, I, well, I've been listening just now to uh, how uh, different uh, local areas can uh, interface and overlap. I'm uh, in Brooklyn here. I uh, have been a little bit uh, concerned and investigative of uh, the, er- the areas where the local overlaps the uh, the uh, the uh, 
I guess for shorthand, I could say corporate, uh, the, 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 the megastructure where that, where that interface happens. And uh, I've been seeing it here in Brooklyn uh, as I've been trying to uh, get myself up to date on what's going on with the uh, 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 low-frequency radiations that come along with our uh, involvement in, uh, in uh, high-tech Internet uh, technology. Uh, there's a cell tower right close to where I live, for example, which was uh, built without so much as a by-your-leave from the citizenry. Uh, the town elders are, uh, seem to be fairly much in the dark about what actually is going on there, uh, what kind of various different vibrations are being broadcast from it. Uh, and I, uh, I think this is an area where, for me, I would like to hear more involvement from the my town officials. You know, I want information. I want to go to my town official, not about how to uh, so much operate my uh, my uh, TV controls, but what are these vibrations about, which we're living in the midst of in our neighborhood? How how uh, uh, where do they come from? Uh, how might they affect us um, health-wise? Uh, and uh, do we have any control over their proliferation? David, uh, thanks for your thanks for your question and your call. Um, Jim Fisher. Yeah. Well, I, I, you never know where a question's going, and so I, I, I wanted to say I, I think one of the important areas of collaboration we're pursuing across the Blue Hill Peninsula right now is improving Internet access. And uh, you know, there's a great debate now whether that means fiber optic cables or 5G. And uh, I share the caller's concern that 5G is, is probably a better urban solution, but it, it involves a great many radio towers going in, and uh, we don't really understand the full health impacts of that. And in fact, I did a program when I was hosting Common Health on the question of electromagnetic frequency and health impacts. And I guess one of the appealing elements of fiber optic is that there's no radio wave at all. It's just light signals, and they're encased in the tube, and so it's very safe that way. On the other hand, you've got all this stuff you're hanging up on poles and trees fall on it, and we know what winter's like in Maine. Uh, but we are working regionally to, to figure that out, and we're trying to do it in a way that we, we can match the power of some of the bigger corporations, the, the, the consolidated communications or fair points or Verizon, so that the towns can get a good deal, so that we can provide people with fast, reliable, affordable internet uh, and 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 that's sort of keeping it local, mm. uh, and it's it, we're we're really struggling with how to make that affordable. But I've recently received uh, a grant from Maine Community Foundation. All the other towns have been pursuing uh, engineering studies, trying to solve this problem. And I think if we if we did go with a fiber optic system, that would reduce the demand for the towers and the antennas. And I and I think that's. Something to consider. I, I'm not convinced that they're dangerous, but I think it's something to, to keep an eye on. Mm. All of you probably are, are, are facing demands for better Internet service. Oh, it seems to be, you know, um, 100 years ago it was a telephone. Do we have good telephone service? Uh, how do you handle that in, in the town of Mount Desert? We had a good geographic stretch of our community that had access only to DSL. That's the, on the western side, the Pretty Marsh area primarily. Uh, we formed a broadband committee, and we entered into a 
private-public partnership with Time Warner, which is now Spectrum, to put cable into that area. So we've now, uh, that project is complete, uh, about almost 400 houses that had either no internet access or only DSL access now have uh, access to uh, good high-speed broadband. So that is our that was our first thing. We now have, I think, pockets of uh, the town of Mount Desert that don't have really good service, but everyone within the town of Mount Desert pretty much has service Some. now, and most of it is, is good high-speed. Mm-hmm. So that was a good project. And the broadband committee that you, you uh, referenced, and that was um, made up of citizens? Yes. And and, and did they um, think about health concerns as well as, as the efficiency of the, of the service? Well, I don't think that was a consideration there. We did go through that whole area of health when we started to put up cell towers. And right. The first one went up in Pretty Marsh, and that was uh, a lot of controversy over that. But we do, you know, they do annual monitorings of radiation and, and what's coming out of there. And I don't have any indication to think that they would be dangerous. We now have four cell towers within the town of Mount Desert. So, mm-hmm. But we, it's, it's worth considering, and, and you have to keep monitoring Is it. there any push to fiber optic access? Uh, there is... Uh, a question. We did a uh, study with Tilson Communications, and they were talking about the idea of fibering the whole town. We've decided to take it in steps, Jim, and what we're doing right now is to say we wanted to get adequate service to everyone. Now we need to look at what is the next step. Is it the is it the 5G, and you talk about the, the need of multiple towers, or is it fiber? There's always that question, you know, it, it would cost us, and I, I think this, this estimate may be a bit high, but they said it would cost us about $14 million to put in fiber to the whole communities, because we have a big geographic spread. The question is, if we do that investment, will a technology tomorrow <laughs> make, it, make it obsolescent? So I think that's <laughs> what we're still struggling with. So right now, I think we're going to kind of just kind of drop back a little bit and just see where we go from here. one 625 um here on Talk of the Towns as we talk about um, small-town governance, looking back and looking forward. We were speaking about um, collaboration and uh, interlocal agreements and so on. Uh, Courtney, are you um, seeing ways in which you can work um, more effectively with neighboring towns, for instance? Yeah, we, um, of course, we have mutual aid agreements with a lot of neighboring towns, um, but we also, uh, we partner with Prospect on uh, several things, and uh, one thing we're working on right now is uh, working with Searsport, uh, specifically for our recreation department, and there are sort of um, talks into, um, I guess, branching out into other uh, potential um, projects that might be cost savings for for both towns. Mm, I can imagine that um, town uh, townspeople talk to one another across those boundaries. And if one town has something that's working well, um, they want to see it introduced um, to, to, to the, your town. Um, Jim, do you have experiences um, that other than the, the uh, um, looking at, at uh, uh, fiber optic um, uh, communication, uh, other things that you're doing town to town? Oh, yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm fortunate. Stonington has a very capable town manager, Kathleen Billings, who's came up through the ranks and, and, and understands the local economy and local culture far better than I do. But uh, I, probably the smelliest problem we have is our transfer station, and, and we have a, a fair amount of bycatch of crabs from the lobstermen. The crabs are cooked and picked by their wives very often in the homes, and all that crab waste is delivered to our transfer station. And 
within hours it's rancid, it smells, it's putrefying, it smells terrible, and it goes into our compactors, the juice goes everywhere, and people are stepping in. It's just a constant stream of complaints in the summer. And so uh, I've been, I went to a training on uh, composting along with Kathleen and the operator of their transfer station. We're trying to figure out what the best sort of mix of solutions are that we can do as, as, a, as an island to help resolve this problem and hopefully turn what is a, a nuisance into a valuable resource mm -hmm. because the crabs make great compost, but we have to have to have a place to do the work, have to have a carbon source to mix it. But there, there are a lot of programs. It was funny because Durlin said that, that, that Northeast Harbor is not a drive-by community, but we kind of are. We benefit in many ways by people going to Stonington, and I think we have to recognize that, that our, 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 the few restaurants that we have, uh, people are driving by to Stonington, they're hungry, they stop where we are. We have a great arts community, wonderful artists, the whole Deer Isle Arts Association. They're a drive-by opportunity where people see the art there. And so we're really fortunate to have Stonington as a kind of a draw that's just south of us. And, and, and so economically, we need to work together in solid waste, and composting, uh, communications, fiber optics. We have a lot of opportunities. Darlene, you're part of a, um, something called the, the, the League of Towns, um, which is a longstanding effort to bring town governments together to talk about these common issues. Tell us a little about the League. The League is, uh, consists of all of the towns on Mount Desert Island, <laughs> including Acadia National Park, and then the mainland towns of Trenton, Lemoyne, and Ellsworth joined us several years ago. It's been a great vehicle to get elected officials together. Each October, we have a catered annual League of Towns elected officials meeting. And actually, the work plan for the League of Towns of what they want the town managers to cooperate together with for that year, it's discussed and we do a vote. Mm. And so we set a, a plan of four or five things. We've had things such as the opioid crisis, affordable housing, you know, the normal things that you would think of as being challenges. It's great in the impact that the, the, the town managers get to know each other well. We get to know the elected officials of other communities as well. And it's a tremendous forum, I think. And our next meeting is going to be in January, this later this month, fourth Tuesday, and it's going to be at the Ellsworth City Hall. Mm. So, so, that the, so you're almost a kind of a, a regional um, not council of governments, um, which is different than the planning commission that, that Jim used to represent. Um, is this a way that other towns ought to be considering, kind of just joining with their with their neighbors? Based on my experiences, I think it's very valuable. If for no other reason, just to have that working and that friendship with your peers doing similar work, it's, it's very nice to be able to pick up the phone and, and to talk to somebody that you know pretty well, not right. just casually through right. perhaps a conference or two, but somebody that you work with, you know, at least on a monthly and, ob and oftentimes a weekly or more basis. So I, I think it's very valuable. I, I think they should consider it. I, um, I ha had a, a piece of history there. Um, I was part of something called the Coastal Resource Center that started the League of Towns, um, and um, we would basically front the cost of a, of a, a noontime meal yes. um, on, on occasion as a kind of a nonprofit saying, oh, we think interlocal inter um, kind of conversations ought to happen, and just that's where it started. It started with, with town managers just getting together for lunch and talking about the issues that they were facing. Very, Ron, very Ron, I also shorted Swans Island and Cranberry Isles okay. who are also members, yep. so I wanted to make sure I yeah. didn't leave them out. 
And I mean, Isla Ho is a destination that yeah. you, you leave from Stonington, so people going there, and that's Acadia National Park is there as well. We benefit from all of that, and we need to work with them. So, the, again, the, the league is, is pretty low cost. It's, yeah. it's not a membership, and you have to pay dues. No, you, you do pay dues, dues, and it's based on valuation okay. and population. Okay. What are your hopes um, as town managers What as we... Um, work towards the end of the hour here. Um, what are your hopes as a town manager, and, and, and what would you tell someone um, about your town as a good place to live? So start with your hopes as town managers. What, what are you hoping in the next year or so? Who would like to start? Jim? Okay. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still new to this. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to be the town manager in Deer Island, work with a very capable group of selectmen and a planning board and a staff that's wonderful. So I I'm the squirrel. I'm trying to run around fixing everything, but I, I'm hoping that we can work together for a vision where we're going so that we, we don't just spin our wheels and contradict, but we all get on the same page and work together. Great. Courtney, what are your hopes as a town manager? I think it's really just continuing to educate uh, the public and uh, let them uh, help them understand, I guess, uh, you know, all the factors that play into our decisions um, and how that plays out long term uh, for goals and whatnot. Um, but overall, I think Stockton's a, a great place to live, and I certainly encourage anyone interested to check us out. Great. Derlin, what, what are your hopes? I think if we're going to thrive in the next decade, that we have to increase and, and, and make our collaborative efforts more effective, Ron. So I'm going to continue to push forward hard on that in the next year. Mm. And uh, Courtney already said it's, it's a great place to live. Is there a particular reason that you think Stockton is a great place to live? Well, it's got mountains and a harbor and wonderful people. Great. Berlin, why would someone want to live in, in the town of Mount Desert? Well, my question is, Ron, why wouldn't you want to live in the town of Mount Desert? You know, it's, a, it's a beautiful spot with great people. And, and Deer Isle, Jim? Great lobster, <laughs> great <laughs> seafood, great scenery. I, I did a scenic assessment. There are a million beautiful places to look out at the ocean. Great, great. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure to join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for future topics, please email us at news at weru.eru. Excuse me, dot org. WERU.org. Tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant from 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday morning of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests here in the studio, uh, Jim Fisher, town manager of Deer Isle, Courtney O'Donnell, town manager of Stockton Springs, and Derlin Lunt, town manager of Mount Desert. Uh, thanks to those who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the League of Women Voters of Maine, serving the people of Maine, making democracy work.